Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Dubs. I'm your host, Bill T, and welcome to episode number 69. This episode, we go across the pond again and talk to one of the heavy influencers that's been making waves in the VW scene over in England for quite a while, Keith Soom. Keith Soom has a huge resume of all kinds of VW things he's been doing. He wrote the book, the book better known as the Bible, the Cowlook VW book. He's also responsible for the beginning of Volksworld magazine in 1987. In 2003, he started Ultra VW magazine. Keith's authored over 12 books on Volkswagens, a lot of which will discuss and talk about his history in the VW scene in this podcast. So Keith's been around for a long time. One of the early innovators that was mirroring the U.S. scene there in London in the early days. But before we get this podcast kicked off, I want to enlist you guys to make sure you go to Apple Podcasts, rate and review and give us five stars. Also, go to YouTube and subscribe to our YouTube page at Let's Talk Dubs. Com. There's a link and also YouTube search Let's Talk Dubs and our page comes up. Follow along as we start to build a 1967 giveaway bug that one lucky listener is going to end up with this bug. Follow along on YouTube as George and I go through this bug and do a bunch of the projects that you guys might want to do at home and we make some instructional videos. So if you guys have any requests, email them to me at bill at letstalkdubs.com. Remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, share it with some friends. Go down a little button with the three dots, hit the up arrow, and send it to some of your buddies in a group text message and let them know, get their life in gear, and listen to the best VW podcast on the market. So without any further ado, let's head across the pond, chop it up with Keith Soom, editor, author, journalist, and VW legend on Let's Talk Dubs. Today's podcast, like I told you guys earlier, we have Keith uh, Soom on the podcast. Keith, welcome to the show. Yep, thank you very much for having me. So, Keith, you've got a, a storied past of VW um, involvement, and it, and it goes way back. And the way we always start the podcast to get to know you and, and some of what you've been through to get you here today is your VW story. Mm-hmm. What is the beginning of your VW story? Uh, well, I was born in 54, to give you just an idea of the timeline. Um, when I was 14, my brother had gone off to university. My brother's five years older than me. And he came back after the first semester enthusing about a Volkswagen that a friend of his had. And anyway, uh, first vacation, the friend came to visit and he had a 62 ruby red bug. And we went out in it and we got out to the countryside and the friends stopped and said, oh, should we let Keith drive it? And my brother was saying, no, 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 he's way too young. He's only 14. And I said, yeah, 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 okay, fine. So I drove the bug, you know, for, a, I don't know, probably no more than a half a mile. And um, like anybody will tell you, the first car that they ever drive just imprints itself on their, you know, on their mind. And um, I was hooked. My brother went on to have other VWs, you know, fastbacks and bugs. And um, it just stayed in my blood, really. So 
that was it. I was I was hooked from the age of fourteen. Yeah, that first inception when you get behind the wheel and you and, and you realize that you can now transport yourself from here to there. You get this this feeling of independence, and uh, I, mm. I mean, it, it's interesting because for some of us, and I've always tried to figure out what creates a car guy. You know, what mm-hmm. makes a car guy a car guy? Uh, we, you know, we've got relatives, friends, and family that that have grown up with us that don't have this affection for vehicles like we do. And I think for some of us, it's that connection that we make when you connect yourself with that car and all of a sudden you become like another person, like almost like a superhero, you know, because I am now part of this car and this car, this this car is a a display of who I am. Um, I think it's, uh, I, I, I haven't found the solid answer yet as to what makes us because, uh, (laughs) <laughs> but but I think it's I think it's this this thought of looking at a car and thinking like man if if I just had that that mm-hmm. would make me cool. <laughs> yeah, I think it's for me a lot of it was my my father was a a design engineer working at um, the Royal Aircraft Establishment in the UK, so he was working alongside aircraft design and whatever. Um, I grew up you know, talking to him about all that kind of stuff. I would see aircraft flying over every day from his airfield. And, um, you know, I got fascinated by the way that things worked. And he was great because dad would always explain everything to me. And also because dad's the first cars that I remember him owning were pre-war cars. So, you know, they had a 1939 Hillman. And um, I remember him... He never took the car to the garage. It would always be work on it himself, so taking the transmission out to change the clutch, all this kind of stuff. And so I'd be looking over his shoulder and I'd get an appreciation for, for what made these things tick. And then I got heavily into cycling. You know, I used to do time trialing and that kind of stuff, and that was great. But the one thing that a car gave you was real freedom. Instead of being able to go like, you know, 10 or 20 miles on your cycle you could well the sky was the limits how much gas you could afford to pay for and that was it and that that's what really made me into a car guy i think it was the sense of freedom that i got but um yeah and it's having an older brother helps as well yeah because you, know, you always look up to him and he would go and buy another car and come home with it and i just think wow that's great and we go out for drive in it you know back in the days when it was cool just to drive for the the heck of it yeah. you know, whereas now it's like kind of socially frowned upon in some circles but heck you know that feeling of freedom is just impossible to replicate i think i think it's that that that, uh, that internal desire to explore to be able to get out and 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 branch out from where you're where you're planted mm. um yeah so your brother's your brother's also a car guy yeah he is i mean he's um he he kept up the cycling side of things much more than me. But I mean, in recent years, he you know he's had a Porsche Boxster, a Porsche 944, or whatever, and a little Fiat 500 and whatever. So he's interested in cars. But for me, it was just like in my blood right from the word go. For David, it was it became transport because he had a family. I never had any, never had any kids. Yeah. <laughs> goes all the way to the phone huh back so you get your first volkswagen when you're around 20 is your 1964 Mm -hmm. 1200 sunroof car yeah yeah and back then in 1974 
VWs, is there is there a hot rod VW market? And, you know, how does that, because there's, there's this timeline between the U.S. and, and, mm-hmm. uh, and England that's, that's yep. offset a bit, but yeah, you see this, you're a young guy and are, how are VWs viewed in the social scene back then? Um, socially, it's interesting. They were regarded very much as a, a car bought by a person, a thinking person, if you like, you know, right. somebody that had an appreciation of engineering, that kind of thing, wanted stuff that's reliable. Um, there was no anti, anti-German feeling, you know, by that time, that that kind of um, drifted away in the 50s. So, but Volkswagens were more expensive than the equivalent British car, but obviously they were built to a far higher standard and so the people that tended to buy them were people that appreciated them, you know, from the engineering side. Regarding the the performance aspect, there has always been a healthy sort of performance industry in the, in the UK. Um, you think of companies like Speedwell, obviously, that tuning the, the British Leyland cars and Fords and whatever. And it's only kind of natural that any car that is slow, somebody's going to want to make a little bit quicker. So... Speedwell produced some tuning parts for VWs. Uh, there's another company, Cartoon, who also did, you know, carburetor conversion, exhaust conversion, whatever. And then in the early 70s, or very late 60s, early 70s, uh, a company called Auto Caban developed over here. And, and they were the first people to import parts from Dino Dinosaurs, from MP, from SCAT. And so from around about 1970 you could buy american performance parts over here but only on a very limited sort of way but my interest in performance had come about because i'd interested in the um hot rod and drag racing scene from since i was about 11 or 12 and seeing my first ever copy of hot rod magazine and i went to uh, my first drag race meeting over here in 1965 when don garlitz and tony nancy and people like that came over to race as part of the so American Commandos drag, drag racing team. Um, and that, you know, I, that kept me going. I'd go and buy a hot rod, car craft, street rodder and magazines. But you couldn't buy magazines like Hot BWs off the book stand over here. You had to order them from the States. So it wasn't until 75 that I saw my first copies of Hot BWs. Saw that memorable February 75 copy with, you know, breaking in the, you know, the mystique of the Cal look. Yeah. And that was it. Just at that point, I was just totally hooked. And I saw that issue in probably round about July 75. And in August 75, I'd lowered the front suspension and dechromed my bug. So that was kind of where it all started. It's the Americans that are to blame for all this. You know that. So. <laughs> and because, you know, what you described as the typical VW buyer was the performance VW guy even more of a of a cult following, like a really small subsect of the group? Yeah, very much, very much so. Um, I remember the what you know the first sort of major new new looks at the VW shows over here called VW Action. Uh, the first one of which was in 1976, and a friend and myself drove up there in our bugs and. 
mine was uh, 67 black dechromed front end lowered it had a just a 1500 motor but with Weber carburation the hot cam and ported heads etc and he had a um, more of a custom bug but again it was lowered on slot mags had a I think it had an 1835 in it and dual Webers anyway we we camped that night in adjoining tents and we parked our two bugs nose to nose. So both with drop front suspension. When we got up in the morning, there was a whole crowd of people around the cars, most of them on their hands and knees looking, wondering how it lowered the front suspension of the cars. I'd done it by the time elder manner of pulling the, the leaves out of the torsion bars. Right. And he had used uh, one of the old scat selector drops on his, but ours were the only two cars at that event that had done anything like de-chroming or lowering the front suspension. And at the time, the equivalent custom VW over here was flared fenders, slot mags, you know, big wheels and tires all round, and maybe a single dual choke carburetor if you were lucky, and that, that was it. That was the kind of turning point over here. You know, I think, you know, my generation started a few years after yours, right? So I started getting into VWs in the late 80s. And, mm -hmm. and my intrigue in a Volkswagen started because of socioeconomic reasons. It was an inex, you know, in the 80s when I was a teenager coming up, it was like mini trucks. But the guys that had mini trucks, mm -hmm. they either had a job or money and you wanted to look cool. So a bug, my first bug, you know, I remember buying my first bug for $200 and it was, you know, leaves pulled out, Porsche nipple hubcaps on stock tires with the clever mm -hmm. 135s in the front and, you know. But back when you guys were doing it, you guys had fairly, I mean, that was a big step to modify those motors because they were still mm -hmm. bulletproof reliable. I mean, by the time my generation's getting these these Volkswagens, they've been rebuilt nine times over and by, mm -hmm. by less skilled guys every time. So that was, you know, back then when you're doing it, you're starting with a 1500, splitting the case, putting a cam mm -hmm. in it, working the heads, putting it back together. And are they still fairly reliable back then once you kind of tweak them? Yeah. Yeah, I think because we tended not to, you know, well, I, I couldn't at the time, tended not to do anything too radical. Um, but we, one of the things is that we could get decent gas back then. I mean, it was leaded gas. It was, uh, you know, about we, we could buy, you know, 102 or 103 octane. We called it five-star gas back then. So running a bit of compression wasn't a, a real problem. But it, it was not easy or affordable um at the time to be able to buy you know decent aftermarket con aftermarket con rods or whatever and things like scat crankshafts were just like you know on another planet but gradually as you we went through the into the 80s then the prices and availability improved it so it's you know people are able to afford to build you know bigger bigger motors without any you know any problem and of course now you can buy all the components you know, pretty much off the shelf to build a 2.3 liter Type 1 motor without having any, you know, major engineering skills. Yeah, I'm thinking of the dedication because you're starting with something that's bulletproof reliable and you want to make it faster. You know, mm -hmm. our generation was like, well, this thing doesn't run very well. I'm going to build a 1776. That's kind of the, that's kind of the uh, mm -hmm. genesis of how that starts in our generation. But, um, I mean... I've, I've owned one brand new Beetle and it was a 2003 Mexican Beetle. And short mm -hmm. of the, the hydraulic valve lifters that would go flat if the car didn't start very long, it was uh, it was like a sewing machine when that thing ran. I mean, it was like, and, and, and all of my a collection of cars, 
whenever I had a car that had the stock 36er, it could sit for mm-hmm. a month. So walk out to the garage, pump the gas two times, and the thing would just fire up and yeah. idle. No issue. So um, it's a testament to that to that bulletproof reliability and also to you guys, your guys' commitment to wanting to mod them, to take a perfectly good car, add some mm-hmm. speed parts, and, and, and shock a few people out there. Um, what, you, do you remember – uh, specifically any times early in the days when you really surprised some folks with your Volkswagen? Well, I mean, in, in um, trying to think when it was, 77, I um, <clears throat> bought a 54 ragtop because uh, my 67 was starting to you know, show its age and I wanted a change, and it was either a question of completely going through it or selling it and buying something else. I bought a 54 ragtop, and I built... For that, you know, to, to to begin with, I ran it around with just the stock 36 horse in it. Um, but then I wanted to go quicker, as you do. So I built a 1700 with, a, you know, 88 mil barrels and pistons and put a, um, a SCAT, I think it was a C45 cam in it. Yeah. Uh, dual 40 IDF Webers and, um, you know, the dual port heads all ported and everything. And you know, I, I don't know what horsepower it made, but you know, realistically, maybe one one twenty five or something like that. But that was enough to turn you know a bug from being a, a slug into something that was, you know, could hold its own. And um, the roads were quieter back then, and the you know the the hot piece of kit for the English guys to own were things like Lotus Cortinas, whatever, with the Ford twin cam motor in, and you know they they thought they were jack shit they really did you know they they owned the road and um it would give me you know you know so much pleasure to find one alongside us at the uh, stoplight and they would look across and you know and i had a an answer glass pack muffer on it so it sounded like the usual all noise and no go kind of deal yeah the throttle a couple of times and they'd think yeah sure and they'd go off and you would just launch and pull alongside wave and, and carry on and they'd pull up at the next stoplight it's like what the heck you know so it it's the same story all over the world you know it's just the thing of wanting to turn something slow and useless that people don't you know look down on into something which you could have some fun with you know it's well, it's just human nature and i'm so and what i'm intrigued by is that it's 1970 it's 1977 you're buying your 54 beetle now at this time in that current economy, everybody wants the newest, greatest, best. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And yeah. you're going the opposite direction. When you can walk into a dealership and buy a brand new Super Beetle, mm-hmm. you know, you're going as far back as you can and going more classic. Yeah. And at this time, the 54 has got to be worth nothing, right? I mean, they're, they're probably super inexpensive back then compared to... Mm what a new Beetle's going for. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember I paid, I mean, looking at what the exchange rate between the pound and the dollar was at the time, I paid uh, 500 bucks for the 54 ragtop, and it was a one-family owner car. Oh, wow. Uh, I had to promise them when I bought it that I was going to look after it, um, which meant, you know, when they got the family album and showed me pictures of the car up in the Alps and everything on the hot family vacations, I knew that looking after it from their point of view was like just polish it at weekends and drive it carefully. 
<laughs> I didn't ever didn't ever dare go back and show them the car later. But um, yeah, I mean, things were things were inexpensive. I mean, uh, I bought another fifty three bug, you know, a couple of years later, and and that cost me, you know, the equivalent of a hundred bucks, and it was so rusty that all I did was, you know, I think I took the deck lid off it and took the motor out of it and then just threw the rest away, which, you know, wouldn't even dream of doing now. But but older 1950s and 19, early 60s cars were cheap transport back then. It wasn't until, you know, the probably the 80s that the value started to, to come up and people really started to appreciate the older cars and started be, being prepared to pay decent money for them. But you, you you could buy an oval window easily for the equivalent of two or three hundred bucks back in the uh, in the early seventies, no problem. Yeah, it's uh, your neighbors had to think you were crazy. Like, what's with this guy buying these old bugs? You can buy a brand new one, and this guy's buying these old ones, tearing them apart, and hot rodding them. You know, you've got to it's got you've got to be on an island of few people at this point. Yeah, I mean, they uh, about the the neighbors. Um, I moved into a, a new rented, well, not new, but new to me rented property in, in 77. And I started a bug project, which in which I wanted to get the body off the floor pan. So I didn't have any other way of doing it other than getting a friend of mine. We took all the bolts out of the thing and, and just rolled the body on, on its side. Off. And all the neighbors were peering out through the window and they wrote to the owner of the property to complain about this new tenant that had moved in dismantling cars in the in the driveway and you know they wanted to do something about it unfortunately the guy said well look they've only been in the house two weeks let's give them a chance so uh, i think they forgave me that because a couple of years later i came home with a um a 426 dodge hemi challenger which was just running on a pair of cherry bombs and firing that up at 6 30 in the morning that's um i think that that wiped the smile off their faces the favorite, so. the favorite neighbor so let's talk yep. about uh, at this point in your life early on you start and I, and I want to see where the the career and the hobby merge together mm. you wrote your first article when you were 23 how did did you become because of your involvement with the VWs and trying to and be one of the the pioneers in that scene over in England? Was it because you were known for that, where people reached out to you to to write an article? How did how did that come about? Um, well, going back to that show I was talking about earlier, where my friend and I took our lower boats yeah. along, it was organised by a gentleman called Paul Harris, who published a VW magazine by the name of Beetling. It was a low circulation title over here. He saw the amount of interest that the cars aroused at the show, and he asked me afterwards, would I be interested in writing a column for him each month um, about customizing Volkswagens? And so I agreed, you know, so I'd be more than happy to. Um, and it, it, it went from there. I, you know, I, I wrote probably so that was yeah late 76 um in july 77 a job was advertised uh, on a magazine called hot car which dealt with sort of street rods and customs and drag racing etc and i applied for the job and they asked if i had written anything before and i showed them these copies of these features i'd done on the vws in this magazine 
and that got me the job. So I transitioned from working in an architect's office because I got a degree in architecture, tra transitioned from that to becoming a full-time journalist in 77. And apart from a, a couple of brief deviations along the way, that's what I've done ever since. So, so I, yes, they kind of, re somebody reached out to me and said, would you like to write for us? So and rather than me, rather than me taking the initiative. But were you, did writing come to you naturally or, or was it something that you had to put a little bit of effort into and, and did you become really self-conscious about your writing? Um, I'm pleased to say that writing was a fairly natural thing um, to me. I mean, I, I'd always done well in English at school and whatever and um, I read an awful lot. So I came to appreciate when reading magazines like Hot Rod and whatever, what made an art a, a technical in, article interesting mm -hmm. as opposed to a technical article which was just like a, a shop manual you know you, you needed you need to write the feature in a way that invites the um the reader into the story and, and makes him want to you know keep on at it rather than thinking well this is boring and putting it to one side um so i i try to develop a writing style which um was more like I was talking to the reader rather than trying to lecture to the reader. Um, yeah, it, it, there's there's a distinct difference. Uh, you can look back to the, um, you know, the famous how to how to keep your Volkswagen alive. Mm -hmm. You know, the yeah. idiot book, and yeah. you can look at the way that that's written, and it's written in a kind of a a warm, encouraging tone that yeah. you can do this and it's, it's not, it, don't let it get you overwhelmed and whatnot. And when you look at a climbers, it's just a to B in a process, you know? So yeah. Yeah. I mean the, the, um, um, idiot books are fantastic. I always remember, you know, just like somebody sticks in my mind from that when he was talking about the starter motor or whatever. Mm -hmm. And he was like, right, lie on your back underneath the car, look up at the gearbox. Now see that, that round cylindrical thing just above the gearbox with wires, that's the starter motor, you know, and that's where, as you say, the climber thing would be, you know, well, take your 17 mil wrench and undo the bolts adjacent to the starter motor. And you think, oh, hang on, I don't even know where the starter motor is yet, you know. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's important. Don't assume that everybody has exactly the same level of knowledge. You've got to right. just, just talk to them like a friend, you know, just explain it you know, in easy terms. And so your, your passion, because your passion is so strong in automotive, it, it's worthy for you to make the career change because you're looking at this like, well, if I can do what I love mm. and get paid for it, you know, this is kind of like a, almost like a full-time holiday, not really like a job to some degree. Uh, I'm sure over time it becomes a job, but with, with this being now your new and clearly you start to go up the ranks fairly quickly because you're mm. working over here at at hot car magazine and then being in the industry are are you because you've dipped your toe in hot vw's magazine are you seeing a distinct difference between u.s publications and, and english publications in regards to how they connect with the readers i think yes yes and um, for what I think really for one very good reason, and that's that the UK is a much smaller country. So, you know, there was a finite number of 
PW events or drag race meetings, whatever. And if I attended those, I would tend to see the same people each time. And they may be the driven 300 miles down to a drag strip from Scotland or 300 miles up from the you know southwest where I live now. Um, but you would get to see pretty much everybody that could be a reader in the country, whereas because the states being, you know, 3000 miles wide and whatever, and probably just as many high, that the readership is spread out much further. So you don't have the opportunity to meet the readers, you know, so much. I know that American magazines sometimes have been accused of being very California centric because there's a lot of a lot of events happen there. So a lot of the speed shops are there and the magazines have been based there. So it's only kind of natural that you write about the vehicles and the shops that you see each day. But to cover events across the country is a major effort in the States, whereas for us, it was it was much easier. We, you know, we, we I say we could meet up, meet all our readers you know, you know, pretty much every BW show. So, well, I think more of my question is there to me, there was always, and, and maybe just because it was different. I remember the first issue that I bought of, uh, of Volks world magazine. I walked into a bookstore here and I'm over there and they had the import section of magazines. I'm like, Oh, this is interesting. You know, cause I would go in there for the hot VWs or look at, Transworld skateboarding or whatever, and I'd walk in and I saw this Volksworld, and I was like, "What?" I'm like, "Look at the size of it! Just the size intrigued <laughs> me, right?" So it's like an old Life magazine we used to have here, right? and so I yeah. grab this thing. It's sealed in a package, so there's a I think there's a free keychain or something in there when I bought mm-hmm. it, and I and I grab this thing and I'm looking at it, and it wasn't. I don't even know if the magazine was just so great, but it was just different. The writing yeah. was different. The The magazine style was different. And I know that you were involved in, in launching, you mm-hmm. know, Volksworld magazine. And, and I want to get into the beginning mm-hmm. of that. But my point of bringing this up is that I don't know, sometimes just because it's different, we're into it. It may not necessarily be better, you know, but it's just a, yeah. because our, our community has a tendency to get so small that we like a little bit of variety, mm-hmm. you know. I, yeah, I mean, one, one of the things that, very obvious when putting Volksworld magazine and most European magazines alongside American titles um, is that ours were from the nineteen, you know, nineteen eighty onwards. Ours were were colour from front to back. We just there was no point in having black and white pages because it didn't cost any different to to print. Whereas a lot of the American magazines had very limited color pages, whatever, and was on a not such high quality paper. Um, and we, we could never understand why American magazines didn't look as colorful and glossy as, as ours didn't, as, as ours did. And I remember talking to, to Bruce Samurda, who we've had on the show, um, you know, when he was editor and publisher of Hot BWs, and yeah. him said to me, said, how come you guys have color all the way through? And I said, how come you guys don't have color all the way through? You know, and it's like, well, it's because it's expensive. I said, yeah, but you guys are much wealthier than we are. And it's like, well, we can't be. You've got color. I said, well, somebody's doing something wrong somewhere. I said, you've been charged too much for printing because, you know, the modern printing pro- process means that, you know, 
color costs no different to black and white. And, you know, we used to, we used to just laugh about the differences between the, the titles. Plus your paper size um, is smaller. So magazines are set to the American quarto size or whatever it was, and ours are the um, A4 size. So it's, you know, ours are like a, an inch taller and half an inch wider. So on the newsstands, they always look bigger and stood peering over the top of the American magazines. So, well, and, and so then that brings my question to, is the magazine industry different in the UK than it is in the States? Because here in the States, it starts, I think it, I think every magazine starts because there's a passion and a, and a scene and it, it's basically a marketing business is what it is. It's to market and advertise companies. Is The, the US model, I think, and I'm speaking from afar, but I, I think it's, Subscriptions are less important than advertising revenue, mm -hmm. and 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 how is that? How does that reflect on the way they do it in England? Is it the same there? Is it the, is the same priority given to advertisers that is to subscriptions? Is there is there a break even point at some point when, I mean, you'd be the guy to talk to. You've launched several magazines. Mm -hmm. Is there such a thing? Because you look at you look at what um, what they're doing now with. Um, Neil's magazine, Air Mighty. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that that can't be cheap, and you know, in, in order to bring in order to bring value to an advertiser, you have to say there's going to be fifty thousand people getting this. That's what you're paying for, yeah, to offset the cost. So, you know, I look at the evolution of that when we look at it as maybe a, a medium that's kind of gone by the wayside just due to digital marketing and all this stuff now. But mm -hmm. was there was it the same in England? I mean, it, was that the reason why there was less color and more and, and more black and white in the states? Or, um, well, my my reasoning for starting Folks World was because there wasn't a magazine over here which covered the fun side, if you like, of, of VWs. But at that point. Um, I wasn't involved with a publisher that would be interested in that kind of title. And I, and I, you know, showed the, you know, I, I did a, a synopsis. I did a, produced a dummy magazine just to show, I showed three publishers. One of them said straight outright, well, you know, we're not into this kind of publishing. Thanks. Bye-bye. Another one who was into enthusiast car publishing said, um, no, I, I don't think so. You know, the Volkswagen scene's not big enough. Right. The third publisher um, said, yeah, fine, that's great. Let's just go ahead and do it because they'd already given some thought to the idea. They've been watching what's happened to the VW scene. And the important thing to, to begin with is there like to be enough readers. And so we got, you know, newsstand sales, which then pulls in advertisers and in the UK, subscriptions actually, uh, subscription income um, accounts for a relatively small percentage of the income of a magazine because we're a smaller country. Every town has its newsstands. Um, at every gas station, you can buy magazines, whatever. So you never had any problem buying a title. Whereas in a country as large as the States, if you produce a magazine in California and you want readers in Minnesota or Arkansas or whatever, they are probably not going to be able to buy it at their local drugstore. They're going to have to, you know, send off for a subscription. So the subscription um, process is, is a much 
more important thing in American publishing than it is over here. But advertising revenue um, is the most important source of revenue for most titles. Until you get into the realms of what we refer to in the trade as vanity publishing, mm -hmm. um, which is titles more like um, AMIT and there are lots of them available now. You know, there's, there's triple zero or zero 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 Porsche magazine, which is, you know, very high end, very expensive to buy, has very minimal advertising in it, and it has um, a high, very high cover price. But also, they're not looking at it necessarily as being a major source of profit. If it co covers costs, then then that's fine. Whereas if you get a major publishing company behind a title, they obviously want to see some money in, in return for their investment. And so, um, you know, sales figures are, are all important and advertising revenue is all important. It's There's quite a few different areas of publishing which, um, you know, to an outsider, you're thinking, well, this magazine's fantastic. Look at the glossy paper, look how thick it is. Yeah. And it's just like, yeah, fine, if I had their budget, I could do that too, you know, so it, you know, it's, it's, you look, you look at a VW bug and you look at a Porsche, they both cars, they both get you from A to B, but they're going about it in a very, very different way. And both, both give pleasure, both can be sources of profit. So that's the way that publishing varies. And so you, you started Volksworld magazine. It was your idea. You took it to mm -hmm. a publisher. You created you, the concept. Started with you bringing it. Yeah. Basically, walking into a publisher saying, "I'd like a job here, and I've got my own workload. It's right here. You just need to give me the money to do this, and I can be part of your organization." Which it takes. It, it's a bold move to do because mm -hmm. you're putting basically your livelihood on the line for what you're in love with as a hobby. Um, mm -hmm. What's it like in the beginning of launching Volksworld? How how difficult was it, and hmm. have you, did, was it a struggle to get? Did you look at the enthusiasts and say, "Guys, I need you people behind this so this is successful"? Mm, that's interesting. Well, I'll tell you how it came about originally. I was working in in, in the the magazine was launched in eighty seven. Mm -hmm. Back in eighty five, I'd been working. Um, in a motor industry magazine, I was editor of that, and I was kind of bored, you know. But and in the evenings, I started to knock together this idea for a VW magazine. Then a job came up as to be editor of another custom and hot rod magazine called Custom Car, and um, so I went for a job interview there. <coughs> In the course of the interview, you know, everything was going well. And they just said, oh, you know, do you have any ideas for the magazine? And I, you know, thinking about that title. And um, I said, well, actually, I said, yeah, I said, one thing I've got, I said, you might be interested. And I reached down and pulled out of my um, case this idea for Volkswell magazine. And the guy looked, looked through it over during the interview and just said, wow okay, let's do this. And so I got the job as the editor of the magazine, of the custom car magazine, but also was given the green light at the same time to progress with the um, uh, getting Volkswagen off the ground. So, so now you, the first six, instead of just one job, you now have two jobs. I now had two jobs, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was editor of custom car 
from January 87 onwards, and in September 87, we launched Volksworld. So from around about June, um, getting the magazine going, I was editor then of, of the two magazines. The only marketing that was done was telling people in Custom Car Magazine that, you know, we were launching a Volkswagen magazine. Um, that didn't necessarily go down that well with the readership because they were primarily into hot rods, customs, American cars, that kind of thing. Sure. And, you know, and, and the fact that the editor was now a Volkswagen freak was like, oh, God, really? You know, doesn't he own a real car kind of thing? Yeah. But we, we, we got the magazine, um, the first issue out. We went to uh, VW shows and did the whole marketing thing there, you know, handing out flyers saying that on September the 27th, a new magazine will be on the bookstands and it'll be called Volkswell, blah, blah, blah. On September the 27th, which was a Thursday, um, on the Friday, my phone rang in the office at about nine o'clock. I'd only just literally walked in the door and it was a guy from up the north of England just saying, I've just been and bought this magazine. It's fantastic. When's the next issue coming out? I said, well, oh, hang on. I said, we don't even know if there is going to be a second issue yet. Okay, um, at the best, it's going to be a quarterly. And then the phone rang again. And again, throughout that day, the phone was off the hook with people saying, when's the next issue? When can, can I subscribe? You know, where can I buy it, etc." And so we produced two or th I think two issues as a quarterly, the first one and then the second. And then the next one was going to be a, a bi-monthly magazine and then we did a couple like that and then it was just like to hell with it and we went and it went monthly from that point on and yet it was never planned to to begin with to be anything more than a quarterly but the the response to it was just so overwhelming and um yeah it was great and i got a pay, good decent pay rise out of it so i didn't complain so. well I, but i but also think that that's also a scary thing at the same time with a landscape you painted for me that it's such a small market you can quickly mm. oversaturate the market like what what people maybe don't understand on the other side of the magazine is that um you know i put on a i put on a swap meet here in las vegas mm -hmm. and i do it twice a year and every time i put it on Everybody comes up to me and goes, you should do this every quarter. And I said, mm -hmm. it's not big enough. There's not enough people. And if I put, you know, and, and so there's there's a little bit of a, uh, this is where my mind is going thinking, okay, I've got, I, I pretty much know everybody in the VW scene. There's not a lot happening. I mean, th the moves forward are incremental. And luckily I'm plugged in to see what's going on in the States. And I see how quickly things are moving in the States. And we're a little slow to catch up here. And, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's, is it a little consuming or is at this point, do you now start to go all over Europe or is the magazine or are the features mostly centralized there about England? I mean, is the, is the readership real sensitive to those things? Um, the, 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 the title actually, well, the, the Volkswagen scene at that point in the, um, you know, second half of the 80s was the, was was the fastest growing aspect of enth car enthusiast market in the in the country it was also happening um to a degree in in france as well because super vw magazine launched at around about the same time now obviously that um you know had a slightly more limited appeal because it was french language 
whereas ours being in English, you know, it had a, 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 a universal appeal, if you like. But they went through very much the same process of it was an expanding market. There were VW shows, you know, new wave sort of VW shows, you know, growing in the UK, France, Germany, wherever. And so the magazines were riding on the crest of this wave. But it was a um, situation where the, the shows was thriving because of the magazines and the magazines were thriving because of the shows. It was a symbiotic relationship. It, it was perfect. It was a perfect storm at the time, if you like. And we, we didn't know how long it would last. If you had asked me in 87, did I think that, oh, I'm trying to think how many years late, 33 years later, right. <laughs> it would still be going. It was just the, this is crazy, you know, forget it. But but here we are. And it, it's, I won't say it's bigger than ever. It's, 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 and it's not necessarily stronger than ever, but it's still big and it's still strong. And, you know, you look at, Events like, you know, Hesse Scholendorf and Bad Camberg, European bug in in Europe. And you're getting people from all over the world coming to those events. Yeah. So, you know, it, it it's mind blowing to think that it has lasted this long. Well, yeah. and I, I also think I've been to. So I first time I went to Europe was uh, in 2014. And my purpose for going to Europe and the UK was Volks World Super Show. <laughs> And right. so my wife, we, we went all over France and Germany, all kinds of stuff for the two weeks up to the Volks World Super Show and going to that show, which I know that in the beginning, the show circuit was a lot of what, like you said, was promoting what was going on the magazine. Mm. Did you, was it, was it, was it, we now have this magazine, we now have to have a show since we are now the leader in the VW scene. And mm. then that... Listen, I've put on shows too. It's a mm. massive undertaking. So clearly, I mean, it starts with your idea, but you got to hand it off to somebody, or are you in, are you heavily involved well, in that too? Yeah, I mean, did get heavily involved. I mean, the first folks world shows were mid nineties, you know, ninety three, I think, something like that, ninety two. Um, but the publishers that were involved with it, you know, who actually published the Volkswagen at the time, they were a pretty big company there. They had about 25 or so magazines in the building and they actually had a dedicated exhibitions department because they would put on shows for, um, you know, there, there was a show, there was a magazine for about the wine industry. So they would have a, a show dedicated to that. There were, you know, other car magazines, so they would do shows for those. So, the the, the 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 nitty gritty so to speak of organizing the show in terms of finding a venue security promotions selling trade stands whatever that was out of my hands i didn't have to worry about that oh that's good but when it actually came to choosing the vehicles um and then being on the ground and working out where those vehicles are going to be displayed, how they're going to be displayed, that came back to the editorial team. Um, so it was very much a, a hands-on process at that point. But in terms of sorting out venues and that kind of thing, that that was handed by handled by a, a dedicated department within the company. So you guys, <laughs> man, my, I got a million questions. <laughs> so 
because you're an enthusiast and now you've taken upon yourself this this uh, backpack of it being your career as well, how involved are you personally in the hobby or has now it become a job and kind of a grind? Um, and, and how do you keep how do you keep the, the the passion for your hobby going? Well, the old glass of red wine helps. But uh, no, it's 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 true. I mean, a lot of people say, oh, it must be fantastic. You know, it's making a living out of your hobby. And so, well, at the end of the day, um, there are times when it, it is it is a job. I mean, you're you know, I'm doing it to, um, you know, put food on the table and you know roof overhead sort of thing but and and the and the other thing is if you worked for example in a bank or whatever or some regular office five o'clock on a friday afternoon that's it you're done and you don't have to think about it again until nine o'clock on monday morning right but but with magazine work or whatever you know the weekend is often when it's just beginning you've you know you've finished your office side of it but you've got events to go to at the weekend you've got press deadlines because the printers are on a schedule and they're waiting for the copy so they can print the magazine and so you have this dedicated slot on your calendar called press day or pass for press day and you've got to get everything sorted by then because if you don't then the printers will charge money extra because you've overrun the schedule so there's always the pressure, but I have to say it's if there isn't that pressure that I don't enjoy the book as much. If you give me four weeks, five weeks to do a magazine, don't tell anybody, but I'll do it in the last 10 days to two weeks because right. I, enjoy, I enjoy the pressure of it. Um, so, yeah, it's... Yeah, doing, doing something... Doing something which is has overwhelmed, taken over your whole life yeah. as a hobby, and then becomes your job. Yeah, there are there are times when I think, why the hell am I doing this? But then I look at guys sat, you know, sat in traffic queues, going off into the city every day to earn uh, earn money, doing the same same thing every day, and just think, no way, no way could I do that. Yeah, you know. And so, so Volksworld gets up and going. And how long are you at the, the the helm of Volksworld? And and at what point? Obviously, it's your baby to start with, and then you have to transition it to somebody else because you can't you can't keep wearing all the hats, right? Yeah. Well, I I was editor through until September '95, so eight years basically. Um, and the reason I stopped then was that I decided to go 100% freelance. Um, self-employed because I'd been starting to do some books. Um, I'd been approached by a book publisher about doing, you know, a couple of titles and which I did and they were successful. And well, let's not be humble. Be... When you say a couple of titles, how many books, how many books have you published? Um, 12 or 13 now. That's a few books. Yeah. Um, it's yeah, it's the, the the book thing is a whole different thing, which we'll, we'll come on to. Absolutely. It's a, well, that's, but, that's my thought. The book is a whole different world because it, it yeah. encompasses 
research and time and effort mm-hmm. and and magazines are kind of like the flash and the quick and and it's done and the mm-hmm. book aspect is hunting down history which has got to be at yeah, some I mean, level a, exhausting a, a book on average um would take us two years to do from from beginning to get you know getting the the idea together to discussing it with the publisher to doing a a synopsis of the idea to doing the research to finish manuscript and then it being in print would usually be about a two-year time span um and what i realized after doing the first you know the, the first two books was that there is no way i could continue doing books and run you know edit the magazines at the same time mm-hmm. something had to give and i was thinking that i'd been um, in magazine publishing since 77 and it was now um, 95 okay it's it's time for a change um, so it meant also that I could work from home I didn't have to I had a 49 mile drive to the office every single day um, you know and, and that was in the, the southern side of London and the traffic was bad and, and I just thought you know I've had enough of this and um, so I decided to go freelance. I carried on. I, I signed a contract so that I could continue um, as consultant editor on Vogue's World. So I'd provide them with material, particularly from the States when I would go to the States to shoot stuff. Um, and then it would allow me to, you know, carry on doing the, the books. And that enabled me then to approach book publishers with some, you know, sort of, far you know far ranging ideas for titles and um fortunately they liked them so it it went from there so what makes you pick the california look as your first book that's your first book right that is that was my first book that was my to know third fourth maybe so what's your first book first book was called the vw beetle custom handbook which is terribly dated now when you see it. It was a. Uh, it was published in I think it was eighty eight or something like that, and um, it was a title that's just like a, a beginner's guide to what you can do with your bug, from you know bodywork to, you know paint, engine, brakes, transmission, this kind of stuff. It was it was it was it was a beginner's guide if you like, and it sold enough copies i mean i was getting a a small royalty off it and it sold enough copies that i could go and build my new race car so i was i was pleased with that so so now that you're out of the magazine and and your grind to some degree has has quelled down to where it's manageable you're starting to pursue some of your you're starting to get in love with the scene again i mean it's 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 freed you up now um yes to to a degree, I mean, I, I, while I was working at Volkswagen, um, I'd started drag racing pretty seriously, um, and then when I went freelance, I had actually can't say retired from drag racing, but I'd, I'd sold my race car. Mm-hmm. Um, I took the opportunity to drive somebody else's if I got the chance, um, but I was still very much into the scene. Like I, I got into uh, I started to get into Porsches. I bought a Porsche 914 6. Um, 
and that started another avenue because I was writing for Porsche magazines as well. So I was doing you know, freelance stuff on that side. But the one thing that going freelance and doing the books and magazine writing didn't do was give me the time that I thought I was going to have to enjoy stuff because um, I ended up with more projects. I was writing for about six magazines at the time. I was writing for, I did a column for Hot VWs for a while. I was writing for um, Japanese mags, writing for French magazine, writing for German magazine, English magazine, and doing the books. So, so it, here, it, it ended up, here, I had no free time. Yeah, so. here you think you're going to scale it back a little bit, and now you're busier than you were working yeah. a, a nine to five. And and I was going to the States three times a year for two or three weeks at a time as well um, to gather stories. So, um, yeah, that kind of et up all my free time. Now, when's the first time you came to the States and was your purpose to, was was it VW related? First time was back in 79 and it actually was to go to the NSRA Street Rod Nationals in Minneapolis um, and then the Street uh, street Machine Nationals in um, uh, Milwaukee. And then the following year in 1980, I went to Memphis with the Street Rod Nationals. But then in 88, I went to California uh, for the first time, and that was to go to VW Jamboree, and um, which was the Orange County Fairgrounds back yeah. then. Um, you were probably just about born then, I think. No, you know? I, that was, listen, my first show, if I'm not mistaken, my first show was a big deal for us. We rented a Dodge Caravan, me and some friends, and we went to the 19, uh, it was the 1989 VW Jamboree held at Costa Mesa Fairgrounds, mm-hmm. and it was in the grass over there. And they had the swap me. It's the first time I, I saw Russell's uh, single cab lowered mm-hmm. with the big fat tack on the dash. And I thought, man, that's a, if I ever get a bus, it's getting a big tash, tack on the dash. <laughs> and all my buses since then have had a big monster tack on right. the dash because the impression it made when I, like, I had had a sung, single cab before. And, and when I saw Russell's, it's one of those things where I was like, holy crap my single cab because this is before lowered buses were all the rage yeah. and yeah. and i'm looking at that thinking man I, i've got to i've got to find us i've got to get a single cab and put a huge tack on the dash and lower it and get it look like that but yeah it was that was my that was my first out of uh out of vegas my first big vw show and it was like going to mecca and i'm over there and my mm-hmm. eyes are about to explode out of my head i'm seeing you know, here you see one lowered car in Vegas. You see one lowered VW that's all whited out, and you're freaking out, thinking it's the coolest thing you've ever seen. Now you go there, and it's like sensory overload. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I remember similar thing going into um, the eight, well, the '88 Jamboree, and um, you're talking about lowered buses, or whatever, and seeing the guys from Bus Boys, them because they did the straight axle kits for the yeah. back of the. Um, split screen buses looking at you know looking at that and thinking that's pretty cool and then seeing my first bug outside the uk with a set of brms on it now brm wheels in the uk we just never saw them over here really because they were they came out you know in 68 by which time the the bugs were four lug so the wheels (laughs) the wheels were obsolete before they even hit the market and so i remember looking at them and thinking they're not really that pretty. And I passed up a set of new old stock ones over here, which were being sold off by um, 
Speedwell and MP dealer over here who was getting rid of all his old stock. I could have bought the the four BRM wheels in their boxes for uh, £200, so four bucks. And I didn't like them, so I didn't I didn't want them. Um, yeah. But I can only ever remember seeing one set on a bug over here. And it took, you know, 10 years later to see them on a bug in, in the States. Um, and it's it, it just like, it was, it was, you know, Jamboree was a whole melting pot because there was the, the rebirth of the California look uh -huh. starting then. There was all, you know, all the, 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 the Cal style bugs, you know, lowered on, you know, um, you know, with all the, the roof racks and this kind of stuff. There were the buses starting to be lowered, all this kind of thing. And it was just like, it, it was, it was, as you say, sensory overload, just seeing all this stuff in, in one place. And, and the greatest thing for me being a Brit, endless blue skies and sunshine as opposed to having to run for cover under the uh, you know from the rain so that was like should cool. i bring the umbrella what do you need an umbrella for <laughs> yeah quite <laughs> well you and, and that's an interesting thing that i wanted to talk about since i am talking to the the author of the cow look in the in the bible even as as we here in the stateside, you know, me growing up in growing up in the eighties, and my first exposure to VW magazines was raspberry raspberry colored cars, uh, fully polished Fuchs, Recaro seats, like that. That's the inception that I enter the VW scene in. And then we see in the early nineties this explosion of this cow look throwback. I remember the first the Bull Run bus that I own mm -hmm. when that bus debuted. I have a photograph of that bus before it was painted on BRMs because BRMs, this is like 2000 and BRMs mm -hmm. are just come on the scene. And I said, I'm going to be the first bus with BRMs on it. And then I saw a bus because now you, you've got, you've got the Samba or VW planet going on now. And so now the world's getting real small and you're seeing everything. And I saw a bus in the classifieds, a red and black bus, which I painted mine red and black. Well, this was ceiling wax and chestnut and it had BRMs mm -hmm. on it. And I was angry and I said, that's it. I'm doing wheels that nobody's going to do on their bus. And then that's when I did the 17 inch twists on my, mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. my, on the bull run bus. But that, this BRM craze, I, I had a set of BRMs. All my friends wanted to borrow them just to get pictures on their cars with BRMs. <laughs> and it's, and it's funny cause you say from, from our standpoint, it was shiny chrome polished. And then you get mm -hmm. this black wheel that's really understated. But there was, and, and I don't know what it was. What what do you think it was that made everybody just like? Even, it almost seems like even in the Calix scene, the early Calix scene, more people were running torque thrusts and center lines and and Urcos and stuff like that instead of BRMs. But once the BRM came back, mm. it was just like this explosion of everything had BRMs on it. You know, what do you think? made that such a i mean was it just the newness of the wheel you think or what uh, well I, I guess you know in in the first generation of um the car looking you know in the sort of late 60s 70 ish the you know obviously the drag race cars were running brms because they were the lightest being made of magnesium they were the lightest wheels that you could buy right and it's pretty obvious that the original California look was so heavily influenced by, you know, the look of the drag bugs because the drag bugs, you know, were running, you know, no chrome because, you know, that's excess weight front down because it's better aerodynamics at speed, this kind of stuff. The BRMs, 
to save weight. And and all the DDS wheels, you know, the the original equivalent of like, you know, ergos, whatever. So it, it was obvious that the early Calvert cars were going to sort of mimic that kind of look and BRMs were very much part of that. But because they were so uncommon, so hard to find, it then became a kind of badge of honor to have a set of BRMs on. And I know, you know, I've heard stories of people seeing them on, you know, cars being driven by, you know, a little old lady or something, chasing them down the street to try and buy the wheels off the car and this kind of stuff. And so when the 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 the, the cow look was regenerated, if you like, by the likes of, you know, what's the third generation now of DKP. Mm-hmm. It was obviously, uh, you know, there there were those people, the Bill Swimmers, Dave Masons, etc., who really appreciated what the BRM wheel represented to the performance VW industry, and they were the the badge of honor on their on their cars, and for for the same reasons that the the, the original drag races ran them, because they they were light. You know, it's no put on, no point on putting a, a heavyweight wheel on a on a little car it's gonna it's gonna slow it down and it's just become the the look the the thing that sums up the cal you know the cal look of of the time it it's insane to think a wheel well but but it's the same with cosmics my type 34 gear i don't know if you're familiar with my mm-hmm. type 34 yeah. that car the inception of that car was inspired seeing randy gates car i had my bus which was really new and unique looking on the scene a couple years later i get stopped in my tracks when i see randy gates split window mm-hmm. and i just think to myself my head just exploded and i thought that's it that's it i don't care what it costs i'm gonna build a car like this and then i'm scratching my chin thinking but i've got to find something really rare and mm-hmm. then i put the plan together and hunted down this Type 34 that belonged to a local guy here that no one had seen forever. And I tracked this guy down, work out a deal, and then buy the car. And I'm thinking, what wheels am I putting on that car that are super rare? And I thought, that's it. It's getting Cosmics. Mm-hmm. And now, when I went to Volks, so that car debuted in 09. When I went to Volks World in, in 14, Every Type 34 Gia that I photographed was sitting, was sitting on reproduction Cosmics. And yeah. it's, it's, it's so funny because that car with those wheels, and I, exp- I would explain to people this way. I said, yeah, those wheels are worth a lot of money. You know why? Because they were the ugliest wheel that you could put on a Porsche back in the day. And that's why there's none around. But it's funny because you see some things that – when they're new back in the day, you know, guys that were around back then would probably say, oh, yeah, those things were so ugly, nobody ran them. But now there's this appreciation for the 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 scarcity of that wheel and how rare it is. And now you want BRMs, you want Cosmics, you want anything. When they go into production and it's a hard-to-find deal, it's like the production just explodes. And next mm-hmm. thing you know, they're on it. I mean, I can't tell you how many sets of Cosmics I see on everything. And it's, you know, the wheel itself, it's an acquired taste. I think when you first yeah. look at it, you know, there, there was a, the wheels. I, I, to get those wheels for my car, I had to buy a $1,500 car for $3,500 because the guy knew what he had for mm-hmm. wheels. And he right. had, the, and, and a testament to his eye to creativity, he had those wheels from, I think I bought, I bought a 67 Bug. 
that that he had the Cosmics on it. He knew all I wanted was the Cosmics. And I said, what do you want for the car? He says, $3,500. I said, okay, fine. I mean, I'm, I'm paying $3,500 for the wheels. I mean, I'm going to mm-hmm. sell the car and net some money elsewhere. But, you know, he had those wheels probably 10 years, 10 years before then. So back when no one was looking for a Cosmic or knew what they were. But it's it's interesting how these wheels, and, and now you look at it, and so now the Cosmic will now be a staple wheel that's in the production, just like the BRM. How many years has it been with the BRM? 20 years now? Yeah. Well, yeah. we're well, actually, yeah, 20 years now the BRM has been out the reproduction, and it's still a staple wheel that's a quick fix to put on a car, and it gives it the look. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting that other reproduction wheels have come and, I wouldn't say come and gone, but have come along, but I'm still staggered to this day that there are probably three maybe four companies that do repro brm wheels and they still obviously sell because if they didn't sell they wouldn't still be making them you know and the the porsche fuchs wheel you know that again the originals are getting harder to find because the porsche guys want them so you're you're fighting against you know another market yeah uh, so the price of those goes through the roof um you get good repros of those you get bad repros of of those but again there's tons of them on the market they still sell you look at um the uh, american the torque thrust mm-hmm. wheel and that's currently the sort of almost untapped market i mean there there is now about to come out um, over, you know, produced by a, a, an English company, Group Four Wheels, they're about to do a very, very nice quality reproduction of of the um, torque thrust in Porsche five lug fitting, and they're doing it in five and a half, six, seven, and eight inch rims. Um, what I'd be interested to see is how those wheels suddenly take off in the on the VW side as well. But all it all this does is show how big the market still is because the fact that these mar- these wheels are still being reproed, are still being made, are still being sold, show that there are new cars being built all the time because you don't build a car with one set of BRM wheels and then throw those wheels away and buy another set of BRM wheels for it. Another set of wheels being sold means the chances are another car is being built from scratch or is being completely revised which means that the owner is investing money in into the scene so you know it's got to be it's got to be a sign that it's healthy no i i i'm like you you know i'm not as into my hobby did not immerse my world but i get i get pretty involved in the hobby in 2014 when i was there for the volksworld show it wasn't 2014 it was uh later ebi6 I went with mm. my friend Chris Cox and Joe Horvath, and we were kind of, yeah. and I didn't know if you know Chris Cox, but Chris Cox, yeah. he yeah. he was he was a behind-the-scenes mover and shaker, made a lot of things happen and controlled a lot of stuff. And so I find myself in a van with the guy from Flat 4 and CSP, mm-hmm. and I just posed the question. I'm like, you know, is the market still growing at all? I mean, it seems to me that the VW market's getting slower and this. They said, no, it's growing by at least 10% yeah. every year. Yeah. And, and the amazing part is we get a little jaded. You know, I mean, when I when I found my bus, my 13-window deluxe, 
I was on cloud nine because it was a deluxe. It was a 13 window deluxe. And now it's like the longer the scene evolved, there has to be a hundred percent more cars on the road than there was 20 years ago. Yeah. And and it just seems that this hobby that we love keeps regenerating itself rather than go through these ebbs and flows, which I'm sure we'll, we'll see maybe a downturn at some point. I don't know, but you look at the average lineup at, you know, you look at the, 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 the DBK lineup, right. When you go to a car show and it's, yeah. 15 split windows in a row and a head Mueller and a, you know, and a row match. And, and it's just like, it's insane to see all these cars that are being dug out of the woodwork and, and just brought back to, you know, to their former glory, even better than they were when mm-hmm. they were new. But, you know, looking back then you would think a 54 ragtop was the rarest thing you've ever seen. And now it's like, you know, yawn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, 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 the big difference. Well, there's, there's several reasons for, you know, the difference in the scene now. One is that back in the 70s, when I you know, bought a rag top for, you know, a few hundred bucks, there were no, you couldn't buy the parts. You couldn't buy replacement body panels, etc. As I said, I you know I, I bought the 53 a while later and I threw it away and I kept the deck lid and motor and that was it. I just threw it away because I didn't have, A, I didn't have the skill because there were no hobby weld, welding kits that you could buy. There was no MIG welding for the average guy then. Um, there, there were no replacement body panels that you could buy. Um, you could buy, you know, Mexican reproduction or Brazilian reproduction fenders for late model bugs but you couldn't go and buy the correct apron for an oval window or split window or whatever you couldn't buy reproduction bumpers or whatever they're just nothing that enabled you to restore a car other than using old school skills of creating stuff out of flat sheets of metal now no matter how bad a car is it, it can be restored if you don't know how to do it you can turn to the internet get information either straight from a, a website or by putting questions out there on Facebook or one of the, you know, the Samba or whatever. And you can get answers to your questions within minutes or, if, you know, for over here, we put a post in the evening asking a question. And then because of the time lag, you'll get an answer from, you know, half a dozen guys in the States who've done exactly the same thing as you're wanting to do and in the morning you you fire up your computer and there's all the answer to all your yeah. problems no right? more r&d on your end it's like go go to the hardware store get this piece go get this modification do this to that and you're home free yeah and and buying parts now i mean i used to go to pomona swap me all the time i would you know go to that every time i came to the states so it'd be twice if not three times a year pomona back in the the 90s there was no ebay mm-hmm. so you would search around find the parts you would go to the v8 section because every That's guy owned he everybody's owned a bug at the same point in their life it was the best That's, spot so to get find, your hidden treasure yeah, you would find as you say all the treasures there and the guys didn't know the value of nope. stuff and whatever so it wasn't like you were beating them down to a price they told you the price and you would think 
yep okay thanks you know and they'd look away why is that guy so happy you know <laughs> but you had to work to get these pieces whereas again now you can you can buy buy them off the shelf performance parts you know you look at the cylinder heads whatever that cb do or the cnc machine stuff fantastic you know the 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 cnc ported heads are to can flow like you could only dream of getting a hand ported head that you could afford to buy done you know 20 or 30 years ago so it, it's a lot easier now which is why the, the market is expanding it's it's feeding itself the more parts yeah means more cars you know it's a, it, it's a grow it's interesting that it's a growing market because sometimes we sit back and we get a little jaded and we think like man this this hobby's going nowhere because i think at some point it happens to everyone else you know we get our favorite time in the hobby that we like and we appreciate and for me it's the 80s and you know like you know I'm, I'm thinking in my head, I'm going to, after I finish my split, I'm thinking I want to do a retro bug back like all eighties, mm -hmm. but you know, and then we fail to maybe see what the new kids are doing. Cause I, I gotta be honest with you. I see a, I see a rusted bug slammed with 0, 0.0 suspension on new radars or something like that. And I, and I just look at it and I go, I don't get it. I don't get it. You know what I mean? Well, you're, you're, you're feeling the way I do. You're starting to get old, you see, you know, and but the, the the but I think the the love the enthusiasm because you got to look at it. I'm from the raspberry polished Fuchs mm -hmm. era, and as soon as the cow look thing came out, I was all in. Like love it. Built a Savannah beige '67 bug that was cow look, and and you know I mean, so I think the, I think the the fresh blood, and then at some point the 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 new school kids will kind of give a nod to the past of the guys that were before them and they'll elevate that level of the hobby a little bit um but you know i i appreciate the growth of the scene i appreciate the blank canvas that the vw attributes to everybody and we can be creative and make it our own and there there's some things that that kind of never change in regards to the hobby some of the people some of the characteristics some of the you know, the, the guys, you know, at the swap meet, they're going to be your gritty guy that you talk to that, you know, he might not be the funnest guy to work with, but he can get you the part that you need or, you know, <laughs> just just the the characteristics, the characteristics of the different characters in our in our scene. Um, getting back to some of your history, you leave to go freelance, you write, you start to you write, you publish the Cal Look book, mm -hmm. you're a freelance for a few magazines. Now you find yourself. 2003 launching ultra vw magazine yeah what makes you go <laughs> what makes you go back to the magazine industry was it i mean how does that come together um well the the publisher of uh the porsche magazine i was doing some work for um 9 and porsche world was a guy called clive hausam who worked with me on a hot car magazine back in the 70s but we had met he was a vw guy and we had met in 74 because he he had a bug which was lowered whatever and he had lowered it using just cutting and rotating the front beam and i was looking at his car and blah 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 we got talking became lifelong friends anyway in 2003 whatever we we got talking and just more or less said, wouldn't it be fun to do a VW magazine again? And that that's 
you know, came about pretty much as a conversation over a drink at lunchtime. And um, we decided, yeah, we would do it. And I, I went and approached Paul Knight, who was then working on Volksworld magazine. And I have to say that I used my contacts. I spoke to Stefan Zantai, who was, again, I'd known since 87, and he was doing a lot of work for Volksworld on um, shooting cars while, you know, as he's living in the States. Um, Dean Kirsten, I've known for many years on Hot VWs. I asked him if he'd like to write for um, ultra, you know, a new VW magazine. And the photographer that Volksworld used, guy Mike Key, um, I'd known Mike since the 70s. And I said, would you like to do some work for us? And they all said yes. So suddenly we had this, what we called the dream team of putting the magazine together. And um, we had quite a few fun years doing it until it got to the point where the magazine industry has, you know, shrunk to a degree. And um, it, it became obvious that, you know, Ultra VW wasn't the, the profit center that we liked it to have been. So the decision was, was made to um, move it on. And um, it was acquired by the publishers of Evokes world um and now sadly is no more but we had a great period when we we were the bad boys sort of muscling in yeah. on the scene using the magazine we always wanted to produce well that's the one magazine that my cars were never featured in because when when my car came out um i had uh i'd met ivan mm-hmm. and he had featured my bus I had my bus featured in Volks World then when the gear came out. And it's one of these things when you create a connection with somebody, you're just like, no, yep. no. You know, it's, it's like the VW Trends, hot VW's yeah, yeah, rivalry yeah. here, you know. Was there some of that between the two magazines? Because n- now, oh. y- you know. <laughs> <laughs> there was big, big time. I mean, um, let, let, let me set the frame. <laughs> you know, Keith goes to his little black book and decides to fire up a magazine <laughs> And he just through the years of contacts, it's it's a second nature thing for you. And mm. and I don't think that you would have done it with any malicious intent. You just said like, hey, there's room, let's do it. We've got the we've got the financial wherewithal, we've got the capability to do it, let's do this thing. And we'll cherry pick people that we want. And I'm mm. sure when the because it's a small market and so when people hear like, Hey, what's Keith doing now? What's this all about? So <laughs> Yeah, it it was um Yeah, I th- I think what it was, I missed the thrill that we had when we first started Volksworld, which was, um, you know, a small team of us working the publishers to produce this magazine. It was all fresh and new. And I had missed that feeling of, of launching a magazine. I'd, um, you know, I've done it, you know, I've been involved subsequently with, you know, launch of a title, but because I knew the VW scene pretty well, I knew a lot of people in it. I knew what great guys they were and how much fun it was, you know, doing the VW thing. That I just wanted to try and do it all over again. And, and saying Clive, the publisher, him being a VW guy underneath it all, um, you know, he just thought, yeah, this is this is going to be fun. And and to give Paul Knight the opportunity to edit the magazine because I didn't I didn't want to go back to editing the magazine or to editing a magazine at the time I just wanted the 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 thrill of trying to get something together and um, then you know help Paul in whatever way you could to sort of get the magazine going and Paul is 
the hardest working person I know in publishing. It was just yeah, absolutely amazing. He's done a fantastic job with the, you know, with the titles. And um, yeah, so I, I, for, for me, it was very much a, yeah, let's, let's, let's do it. Let, let's be the, yeah, there was a degree of being the bad boys. Let's, you know, see what, <laughs> what, what, you know, what, what trouble we could stir They stopped up, shaking so. your hand at car shows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Some people did. I'll tell you, there was a, there was a guy who was the, art editor at the time of Vogue's World, mm-hmm. when we launched, well, we, we announced at Bad Camberg, we were handing out flyers <laughs> that we were, we were launching Vogue's World, this new magazine. And, Ultra, um, Ultra VW. Uh, Ultra, Ultra VW. And th- this guy was walking towards me. We made brief eye contact and he just turned around 180 and walked off. He wouldn't speak to me. And it's just like, hey, come on. Ivan came up to me and just like shook my hand and said, well, this is going to be interesting, you know? So, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, it was, it was, it was fine. It was fine. At, at the end of the day, we were all VW enthusiasts who happened to be in publishing, who were just being paid to do what we enjoyed most. And yeah, it, it, it was, it was a good laugh. There was friendly rivalry without a doubt, but yeah, it, it was fun by being the bad boys, definitely. Now, since since you kind of created that, um, the the rivalry there, what was it, how, how difficult was it to try to stay fresh and new in such a limited market now that everybody's gone global, right? Everybody's global, <laughs> everybody's got contacts here, there, and everywhere. How are you able to try to, because there's got to be some desire to, like, we're the first ones to feature Car X, Cars yeah. came out, and we give you the full feature. Yeah, the I think the one advantage that um, Ultra VW had at the time was the fact that it was part of a very small publishing operation. So, um, yeah, in 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 the in the publisher's office, I think there were about four full time members of staff, and then other people involved with the magazines worked from home and Volkswald was at the time a part of a, a very big publishing company one of the biggest magazine publishing companies in the country so there was more concern about the bottom line about budgets this kind of thing there was you know slightly less freedom to do stuff they'd like to do um, and when I handed over the editorship of Volkswald to Ivan in 95, Ivan said almost immediately he was told, well, okay, look, your promotions budget has been cut by 50%, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, I got away with it. I'd known how to work the system, if you like, but they took the the um, the opportunity to cut all the, you know, the, the, the budgets available to the title. And I know that, you know, that made it a lot harder to do because you then had to, if you like, reason with the hierarchy in the publishing company why you wanted to do this, why you wanted to do that. Whereas when you're working for a much smaller publishing company, which is being run by somebody who is a car nut himself, then it's like, well, we'd like to do this, you know, like to give away a poster in the magazine. Okay, okay, fine, let's let's do it. Yeah. You know, there, there wasn't the endless meetings to decide whether it could be done or not. You know, decisions were made quickly. You know, right or wrong, they they were made quickly. You didn't have to wait for word to come back from on high two months later or whatever. Well, I think that the part of the process with 
a car and a, a petrol head being in charge of the magazine is by proxy of being a petrol head, you're automatically instituted or I- initiated into the club of the more money than brains group. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so when it comes to something that promotes the hobby or giving away a poster, I mean, that was one of my favorite things of Volksworld was my car had made the poster two times. And I thought, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's all, you're, you're always looking for something in this world of, in this ocean of we all have Volkswagens, what makes your Volkswagen a little bit different or what makes your car feature mm-hmm. a little bit different? And for me, the, you know, the posters that I was in on both those magazines were great. I, I loved, what I loved about the magazines that came from Europe was a distinctly different style in photography mm-hmm. without question. Yeah. You yeah. know, the features were a bit more creative and, um, you know, I worked with Kiki shooting my Mm -hmm. cars and we always just try to do something cool and you know maybe it was for my first feature with bruce that i did with the with with the now bull run bus when i featured that car i was super excited to be in hot vw's he said yeah find a good backdrop i put no thought into the backdrop or any of that kind of stuff and i look at my first feature and i think like man how bland was that when we really could (laughs) have taken it over the top and then when you see you evolve into the Gia layout, which I did at the neon sign graveyard here. And I had to pull strings that the average person couldn't pull strings to park a car there. And, you know, uh, you know, I I talked to Ivan one time and he said in in their meeting, they used that as a specific example of what makes a great photo feature was the location, Mm -hmm. the backdrop and all these, all these things. Um, What is, what's one of the most, crazy things that you've gone through to feature a car or to, 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 to get to a feature car, whether it was a location or what you had to do to get to the car or anything stands out in memory like that of, of the elusive, we finally got it for the magazine, this car. I think probably trying to shoot a car, something like a, you know, what we know as a stately home, the kind of thing. And you realize that you can, use this amazing great big mansion as a backdrop and just think that would be really cool and you would drive up start setting everything up and whatever because there's nobody around and you're two-thirds the way through a two-hour long photo shoot and then a guy comes roaring up in his security uniform whatever and starts screaming at you what the hell are you doing here and all this kind of stuff and throwing you know just throwing you out and you're saying look we've nearly done I don't care, just, you know, get the F out of here kind of stuff. And that that's the the biggest kind of problems that we have, you know, ever had to cope with. Fortunately, I never got thrown in jail over any of that stuff. That's that's okay. But it's for the most part, people have been pretty good. And I will say that it's when I've tried to photograph cars out in the States that I've had the most problem having access to property or whatever. People don't like, you know, you go and knock on somebody's door and say, you know, would you mind if I used, you know, your property as a backdrop? And they, you know, they, they've almost got the one hand on the gun. They've, you know, ready to, then the other hand on the phone to call the police sort of thing because they convinced that I'm going to rob them or whatever, especially if I'm speaking some bizarre accent too. You look pretty but, seedy. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's it's my... <laughs> my my flowing you know mane of hair yeah right okay uh, but no i mean it's in in the states so my my hat comes off to the likes of dino and whatever to be able to find interesting locations because 
people are more, more security conscious, it seems, over there than over here. We, we have it a lot more easy. Um, we don't have people saying, how much are you going to pay us to use our property or whatever for photoshop wow. which I've had a few times. So I don't know. So I guess that's kind of boring. No, I haven't, haven't, haven't had any real scary stories. So. so let's talk a little bit about your drag racing. So you got into drag racing back mm -hmm. in the, it looks like in the, in the late 80s mid-80s you, you started um, drag racing yeah i was saying i've had an interest in you know since being you know or since night uh 65 whatever going to watch mainstream drag racing when it's getting off the ground over here but and i first put a a bug down the track in 76 um at a, a test and tune meeting i didn't dare tell my parents they would have shot me for like daring to put my car on a racetrack um and i ran a 1901 at 68 miles an hour that's pretty cool you know but i i was pleased you know i had that thing of staging a car and whatever but it was in 87 um when i built a a, a cowlick fastback um and that was the year when they had the first of the new waves of bw events started over here called bug jam and they had a it was it was um centered around santa pod drag strip and so there was you know it had a, a the opportunity to do test and tune or run what you brung all weekend they had some demonstration cars there like you know v8 stuff and there were a couple of vw drag racers that had been running in the mainstream racing over here but no dedicated vw series the success of that event led to the setting up of the Volkswagen Drag Racing Club over here because a group of us got together and um, decided we'd like to try and develop this as a sport. And um, so I raced my fast back in 88 uh, for a full season, ran a best of 13.56, whatever in it. Um, and then the following year, I bought an existing... Um, drag sedan less the engine um and i built a i i'd met the dave and judy kaywell kaywell race engines oh, yeah. in santa Ana. um i'd met them because dave racing his square back and me being a, a type three fanatic with my fast back i wanted to meet this guy and um judy kaywell bless her she did her best to sort of like protect me or protect dave from this crazy English guy who wanted to talk to him and in the end he you know they gave up and I spoke to Dave Dave talked to engines with me and in the course of one conversation he had convinced me to go from building a an IDA motor to building a turbo deal and um, I'd been going to the VW race meetings and I'd seen the likes of Ron Townsend and whatever that were winning you know and and they had KRE decals on their cars so i realized that well this guy cable obviously knows what he's talking about so i bought a turbo kit off dave and um put it on my first turbo bug ran 1080s in it um but then added at, at his shop dave had a uh, a chrome molly chassis car there of a customer which had never been finished the chassis had never been completely finished the body was a split window bug body which had been roof chopped, that had never been finished. So I bought all of that off him 
um, and built during 1990. I built a a full-on chassis car with a basically a K-Well turbo motor set up in it, um, and gradually developed that and um, ran 10-0 at the end of the first season. I ended up running uh, best of 987 at 140 in it, and it was the first bug over here to run back-to-back nine-second quarter miles. Um, so, so that felt good, and, and do you when you accomplish that kind of stuff, you're like, you know what, I've done it, it's fast, I'm ready to move on. Well, yeah, because I, I started midway through Midway through 94, I started accruing all the parts to build a new motor. I was going to, because the, the motor that was in it was only a 78 by 94. So it's what, 2160, 2165, whatever it is. Yeah. And, you know, it had a type one case. It had a welded and stroked porter machine crank in it. It had Carrillo rods because they were the best I could afford. It had some type one heads that Dave had done for me. Um, it had a Type 1 transmission built for me by Howard Carter. Um, so it, it, it was before the days of Mendiolas and everybody using autocraft cases and this kind of thing, and I couldn't have afforded that stuff anyway. But I started to build or get the parts to build the 2332, and then I realized that, you know what, because we were doing bracket racing, and I would end up probably for huge expense to build something which I would run two or three tenths quicker. And I just thought, what's the point of doing that? You know, I'd, I'd always won my um, rounds, by, you know, my brackets by being real consistent. And um, I thought, you know, there's no point in spending, you know, 20,000 bucks on, you know, building another motor just to run that little bit quicker and doing the same thing of just running consistently. So I decided to, um take a year off and i'd you know and, and see how i felt and at the end of the year i hadn't actually missed the chasing you know points rounds all the time driving trailering a car 100 miles each way to the track that sort of thing and um i was thought you know what so i put the car up for sale sold the engine to one guy who used it in his race car very successfully over here and then sold the rest of the car to somebody else and um then it came back to the UK. You know, I sold it to a guy in Belgium, um, and then it came back to the UK a couple of years after that. But um, since then, I've had the good fortune to become, you know, very good friends with Ron Fleming, who is like my my long lost brother from a different mother. Yeah. And um, we we I'll tell you a story there. We Ron was over with, at, at the European Bug In with me. He'd come over and stayed with me in the UK, and we went there. And we were sitting in, you know, you know how hot it gets there. Yeah. And we were sitting there in the chair with, you know, with a beer. And a, a French guy came up with a book and he wanted um, my autograph to autograph the book. Then, and I said, I said, and this is Ron Fleming. And he looked at both of us and he said, uh, you, you, you guys are related because we both <laughs> pulled in gray hair, gray beards. And I just said, yeah, he, he's my dad. So that, that became, became the thing. So, I was now, you know, Ron was my dad. I, you know, he was his son. But anyway, Ron knew, well, he had seen that I could drive the car okay. And um, he he discussed with uh, Mike Hunsaker, the joint owner of his Super Street car, about when Ron was, you know, organizing an event at um, 
one of the tracks so that he couldn't drive his car himself as he was race director would i like to drive it so going back to i think 2006 whatever ever since then i've driven his car various times i can tell you it's a whole lot cheaper driving somebody else's car than driving your own. it's nice to be a paid driver just to show up and uh, run the car and then go enjoy the show yeah, yeah. so one of the other things that, that you did that a lot of us dream about is shipping their car to another country um, you okay. shipped your car here back in 2010 yep how I think that's like the pinnacle dream for every guy when we think like, man, if I could take my car and ship it over to, to, to Europe and drive around for a summertime showing off my car and, you know, this is yeah. my my piece of me. What was that experience like shipping your car over to the States? Well, it, it was to coincide with the 45th anniversary of Decliner Panzers, mm -hmm. which I'm blessed to be a, mem a member of as the you know, greatest club in the world. Sorry, other there are other clubs out there, but DKP not that you're partial. <laughs> but um, you know, I, I wanted to go out for that event, any or that meeting anyway, which was going to coincide with with Buggin, and at the same time, Russell Ritchie over here, who had been you know restoring a number of the famous sort of gases like Tarbabe and whatever, and I had done where I could, I helped with research or whatever on those. He was going to be shipping a couple of the, his cars out for bug-in and, um, and to get to the, to the reunion too. And so there was going to be, you know, it was easy, it's easier to ship four or five cars than it is to ship one. And um, so I decided that this is a now or never kind of deal. And I, I sold a whole ton of my memorabilia that I'd been collecting over the years um, to pay for the, the actual shipping costs, whatever. And yeah, I, I had a 65 bug with a 2332 IDA motor with all Berg crank and Carillos and all this kind of stupidly expensive stuff in it, um, Berg five speed. And um, I thought, you know, I've got the car I always wanted this is once in you know lifetime opportunity. Let's, let's just do it. Yeah. And um, so I shipped it out for bug in. I shipped it out to be there two weeks ahead, and U.S. Customs held the car up for ten days. And it was just like uh, I don't believe this. We got to like the Tuesday before the event. I had arranged because there was a noise from the what I thought was from the transmission, and Mike Herbert had um, offered to pull the trans you know if i could pull the trans when i got at car there he would go through the trans for me thinking he would have a week or 10 days to do it in and um so as the car was eventually freed from customs we got the phone call rushed over there with mike hunsaker and his race trailer pulled the car back to ron's shop we pulled the motor out pulled the trans out mike hunsaker took the car away to um, Rancho, he rebuilt the trans overnight. We put the trans back in the next day. On the Friday night, we drove to the DKP pre, um, you know, to the to the, yeah, the cruise the pre, that the night. Classic meet, yeah, yeah, and um, then drove it to Buggin at the weekend, and it was just like for me, it was, you know, it was everything, you know, just to have the car there. And then the, I flew back home, left the car there, it's in the left in the Slays Brothers Museum there. 
came back in June and then drove the car to, to Classic and at the DKP pre-Classic meet, um, Stefan, who always, you know, organised where all the cars went, he had left the prime spot for me to park the car at and it was just like the proudest moment of my life to have my car at, you know, on show at Nick's and then at the um, the lineup with all the rest of the club guys at um, Irvine Meadows. It was, could never repeat that. Could just yeah. never repeat that. Yeah, you know? I, I tell you, any guy that goes to a show that doesn't have his car just feels like, man, if I just had mine here, if I yeah. just had my car here, because there's something I remember what, the first time that I'd gone to the D, my favorite of the weekend, usually the DKP meet that they had at Dairy Queen. And the first, the first year I brought my bus out when I left, I made sure I wanted to leave a little bit early so I could start with a big nasty burnout as I was leaving. Yeah. <laughs> and then the same, I did the same thing in the, uh, in the Gio when I left. And it's just like, it, there's just an energy there and yeah. having your car with you, you know, and especially, and then of course it drops the Volkswagen attitude on you. Like I just get it here. Now it's making a noise. You got to be kidding me. I bring it all the way here and now I've got a transmission problem. <laughs> so you said that you thought it was a transmission. What did it end up being? Um, Don't tell me very, the, tra the tranny was rebuilt for no reason. <laughs> Well, no, actually, the interesting thing was is that Mike actually found that the um, uh, one of the main bearings in the case was actually slightly loose in it anyway. But the um, the, the 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 noise turned out to be, and it was the most bizarre thing because it was an auto, an auto linear case uh -huh. in it. The oiling for the distributor drive in it wasn't as efficient as it could be and the the drive was running drive oil yeah it wasn't machined so, properly yeah 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 that's, just a little that's... thing but it, it never even crossed my mind and what was happening you and and the first time i heard it was when dino kirsten came and stayed and you know and we drove out to european bugin together in in the car and we were driving along and then suddenly this like humming sound sort of started and we thought what the hell's that because you came the instant thing you came off the gas and dipped the clutch and the noise went away and we thought oh that's okay it's it's got to be like the you know the release bearing or something yeah. you know throw out bearing and and we tried that and no it wasn't so it's because it was it happened or it went away when you came off the gas tend to think it's a load problem in the transmission and it wasn't that at all so <laughs> very bizarre Man. Yeah. well so <laughs> Now we're up to what you're doing now. So now you're the editor for Classic Porsche Magazine. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that publication. Um, Dan, it was it was my idea about 20 years ago to that there was no magazine that covered just the, the you know the classic and historic side of Porsches, and um, I did a proposal again to publisher and decided at the time it probably wasn't right. And um, then when um, I was you know, doing Ultra VW and um, just talking with Clive again, the publisher, and we decided that, you know, they they put together a, a, a one-off thing with, you know, about, you know, classic Porsches using old features from the other Porsche magazine, and it was well-received. And so we decided at that point, you know, we'd go ahead and do it properly. And we, you know, we ran it by, you know, with me as editor. So I had the pleasure of trying to build the magazine up, and it started again as a bi-monthly and then, you know, as as a monthly after a year or so, 
um, or, or in fact, it's nine issues a year. Yeah. Um, it's kind of odd, but every six weeks basically is, um, and that that keeps me out of mischief now. So, well, um, I I think there's always that overlap between VW guy and Porsche because I think our dream is one day we'll have a really cool Porsche, but right now the VWs are baby Porsche and without the VW, mm. there would never be the Porsche. So we kind of have the Genesis of the Porsche that we drive every yeah. day. Um, but you know, I've I mean, owned a few nine elevens and some nine mm. fourteens and some things like this. And in the overlap there, I think it's a, the, in the, the hands-on enthusiast, Mm. makes that evolution there are porsche guys in the porsche circle that are not really hands-on guys mm -hmm. and then there's the the dirt under the nails guys grease under your fingernail guys like yeah. us yeah. that we're the ones that are there that that make that evolution but i think you know driving my porsche i remember driving my porsche on the freeway and every Chrysler 300 wanted to race me if i was on the mm -hmm. freeway every honda wanted to race me everybody wanted to race me Driving yeah. my bug, everybody thought they, they they weren't trying to race me. They were just going to get in front of me and pass me, and and you know I was just yeah. in the way. And yeah, there's definitely yeah. a different attitude driving, driving the two, and there's a lot of yeah. similarities. You know, a lot, a lot of us kind of are on both sides of the fence. Um, I understand that you currently are driving a modded nine fourteen right now. Yeah, it's it's a it's a seventy seventy five. You know, that I imported from um, South Carolina, you know, about it just over a year ago. And inevitably it's, you know, got a hotter motor and, you know, I've lightened it and, you know, converted it to five lug wheels and this kind of stuff. Um, but there is, yeah, what, you're right. There's definitely is a, a crossover because I hardly ever meet a guy on the classic Porsche side that hasn't owned a v-dub or doesn't still own a v-dub and there is hardly a vw guy i know that doesn't aspire to not necessarily selling his vw to buy a porsche but who doesn't want to have a 356 or an early 911 because it's it's the nat it's the natural prog progression i mean they they you know they they are two same brothers you know from a similar mother it's, yeah. or a similar father got different mothers maybe but yeah you know there, there is definitely a big overlap there and the 356 guys i think are well attuned with the the vintage volkswagen guys they can identify that because they can see that's where their cars came from the modern porsche guys probably not so um i mean for uh, i used to have a 912 hot rod with a six-cylinder motor in it you know and done as a you know just full-on hot rod 911 kind of deal mm -hmm. and people would drive past on the freeway and you know they take a picture or whatever or wave you know thumbs up that sort of thing i sold that because i'd i'd come to the end of my journey with it i'd enjoyed creating it and then i drove it for a year and then i wanted to do something else and i'd never owned a modern porsche although i'd driven numerous of them and so I bought a four-year-old Porsche Cayman, which was fantastic, perfect car, perfect being too nice, too good. It didn't have, it didn't have soul, you know. No thrill. And what I found, yeah, what what I found was that people reacted very differently when I was driving that. People would sit 
two feet from your rear bumper or they'd cut you off or they wouldn't let you out of a side turning in traffic, this kind of thing. But as soon as you drove an old Porsche or a VW, then people would wave you out or they'd say and they'd give the thumbs up, that kind of deal. And I kept it for one year, sold it, lost money and ever to be doing that and then bought the 914 and you're back to people waving, wanting yeah. to talk to you at gas stations and everything. And it's just, it's great. You, you, you feel you're back part of the sort of, you know, big family again. I just love it. Yeah, it's definitely, there's definitely different characteristics based on what you drive. And, yeah. uh, and it, the, the great thing is you can get as lost in the Porsche, in the early Porsche models as you can in the early, in the VW models because there were so many different nuances and variables between different models and platforms between whether it's 356, 912, 911, mm. 912 E, 914. I mean, just, yeah. just in the air-cooled Porsches, it just mm. in the world of 914s, there's a bunch of different hierarchies yeah. there. Yeah. Um, and, and the great part is they all they all overlap and there's similarities. But I think the character of the individual, I think when I said the thrill, the, the, the thrill that you were missing in the Cayman was that you could possibly be roadside stranded <laughs> at any <laughs> given moment and you had to be prepared for battle. Yeah. Oh, well, my my um, tagline on one of the forums is that reliability is the enemy of ad- of adventure. <laughs> That's right. If a, car, if a car is completely reliable, you're never going to have a story to tell about it. That's and right. if and if you're something like your Cayman or brand new Porsche isn't reliable, the only story you're ever going to have to tell is how you have to get your wallet out and pay a big bill. So, because you, you can't fix them by the roadside, and nobody's going to stop and see if you're okay. They're going to drive past and laugh at this guy broken down in his Porsche. So, no, absolutely. Well, I tell you, Keith, it's been a great time talking to you, and. Um, Anything, anything in parting you want to leave us with? Oh, when this unfortunate situation with the virus is over, don't don't rush now. Wait until it's over. Go out and drive the wheels off your car and talk to everybody. In the meantime, pick up your phone, talk to all your friends that you would normally bump into at car shows, drink a a virtual beer together or whatever but you know just just have fun and say so when it's all over go and enjoy driving the cars that's what they're built for yeah i think this you know we're planning a big show here in vegas in october because Corey max doing a drag mm-hmm. race i'm hoping by october we're still a thumbs up but we've yeah. got three nights of events or three days of events that are going to be taking place at a hotel and casino that will be the main hotel and casino that will have smaller events there to support the big mm-hmm. show on Sunday. And uh, I don't know if you'll be headed to headed back to the States this year. Uh, flights are probably super cheap if you book them now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> but, uh, yeah I mean, my, my plan was to come out, you know, um, October, November time. So it, it just entirely depends on what's going on with yeah. the situation, the situation about which we do not talk. Right. <laughs> well, I tell you what, for sure, um, if if all things are a go where we're at, um, I definitely uh, love to see you at our event. And I think mm. I, I think when this thing blows over, the VW community is going to uh, really appreciate maybe the surplus of events that we had now that we've had it taken away from us, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, what it comes down to Keith, I think is, is, is the friends we make and Mm -hmm. you know, that, that our hobby 
naturally brings brings people together of like minds and, and similar passions. So yeah, um, definitely, definitely. Keith, it's been great having you on the podcast. I appreciate I appreciate everything that you've done for the VW scene, all no, of the <laughs> time, effort, and and energy that you've put into. Uh, from from books that you've given us to to read and get historical information and and data and magazines that you've been a part of that have inspired us in our garage to build things to get out there i want you to know from me that you've been uh, a, a, an incredible influence on the vw scene it's, it's impacted me in my desert town of las vegas as a as a, <laughs> as a young man and uh, I, I tell you i appreciate you and the hard effort and work that you've put into it so well Thank, thank you very much. So, so very humbling. <laughs> well, Thanks. listen, you've done a lot. So, man, I, I hope you I hope you're able to make it out. And uh, for sure, this won't be the last time that we'll have you on the podcast. I'm sure we'll do it. And and in our show in October, we may do like a live roundtable. We just bring people into the podcast and just chop it up about what's going on currently and in, in whatever's happening that day. So sounds, um, sounds good to me. Keith, I appreciate you, man. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Okay. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Have a good day. You got it. Hang on a second. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe. Also follow us on Instagram and subscribe to our YouTube channel as well to make sure you don't miss any of the content that we constantly put out for your VW enjoyment. Until next week, guys. Later. A Volkswagen is a nice station wagon to have a